You're listening to episode 121 of Diferente. Wait, hold up. Before we go any further, I have something very important to ask you. Will you share this podcast with your friends? It's very easy to share the love by either texting a direct link to this episode or posting a screenshot and link to the show on your preferred social media platform. Make sure you tell them why you want them to listen. Thanks for your support. Now back to the show. This is the fourth edition of our Access series. And in honor of the fast approaching November election, we're talking access and representation in our communities. My guest this episode is former White House Senior Policy Advisor Tom Kelly and current Director of Capital Development and Buildings Administration at Wayne County, Michigan. Yeah, it's a mouthful. In other words, Tom has spent a large part of his career working to improve access and representation on a variety of issues that affect our communities. We discuss how we need this course now more than ever in order to engage diverse points of view to find better solutions to the problems our world faces today, and why the biggest mistake you can make is thinking that you have all the answers. You know, this is the third guest I've had who has met or worked with President Barack Obama. Now, I'm not a fortune teller, but I'm pretty sure that means I might be interviewing President Obama soon. I'm just putting it out there into the universe. Are you listening, universe? Bienvenidos. Welcome to Diferente. My name is Maribel Quesada-Smith. I'm an expert at questioning everything who wants to bring more color into your life. I'll be coming to you every week with a little humor and a mountain of passion to share with you experiences and lessons in life, culture, creativity, and business that will inspire all of us to explore different perspectives. Don't be surprised if you find yourself motivated to shake things up. That's known to be a side effect of the Diferente life, and it's contagious. Now let's get to it. Tom Kelly, a.k.a. the best roommate I ever had. Bienvenido a Diferente. I am uh, flattered to be the best roommate you've ever had. Uh, hello, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the best compliment I've received in a while. My wife may have a, uh, a different interpretation of that. <laughs> Maybe I need to teach her how to handle you a little bit better. I, I don't know. I know. It's an art form. <laughs> so let's talk about your story a little bit. So I actually grew up on the west side of the state in the Stevensville, St. Joe, Benton Harbor area, which nobody has heard of. Uh, oh. So I'm not offended by it. So what was your dream job as a kid? I wanted to be a train engineer. And why? You know, a lot of kids want to be cops and firemen and all that. I have no idea why, but I wanted to be a train engineer. And then I wanted to be an archaeologist influenced by Indiana Jones until I realized <laughs> that uh, it was a, a lot less wearing fedoras and whips and a lot more digging holes with brushes. And then when I got to high school, I was kind of, I, I started getting really interested in politics. The problem with politics is you don't know what a career looks like really until you kind of dive in. And you're, you're, you're always like, oh, I'm interested in policy. I'm interested in making change or whatnot. But, you know, it's very difficult to figure out, I want to be X. You know, if I wanted to be a doctor, that'd be very different. But um, the political process interested me at one point. Do you remember what specifically of the process was interesting to you at that time? I guess it had to do with sort of, you know, identifying a problem and going after it and recognizing that individuals had the ability to make change. So, you know, you could you have an issue, you have a policy that's clearly broken. Instead of sitting around whining and saying, oh, you know, I wish I had a better lot in life, you say, 
I'm going to get involved. I'm going to get active. I'm going to raise awareness for said policy that is less than ideal or is putting me in a bad position or whatnot. I guess it's sort of part of the whole like unwillingness to accept defeat and say, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to do something about it. And mm. I think that was very attractive to me. You know, my, my father's disabled. My brother and father both are actually disabled. And you know, they struggled. And we struggled as a family. And there were a lot of things that I recognized early on that it didn't have to be that way. And, mm. you know, with the right effort and the right people and the right coalitions and whatnot, you can make change. So that's kind of how it started, really. Is that what led you to pursue a career away from home? Because I know you went to college outside of Michigan. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I think that, so I left Michigan and went to undergrad in Chicago. And I was, you know, attracted to living an urban life. I mean, again, it was a small town we lived in. So I was somewhat of a late bloomer. And I needed to kind of get away um, to kind of find myself and figure out, you know, what I wanted to do. And I think it, it's really benefited me. Look, I adore my family. And I wasn't too far away from them, but it was probably good that I kind of set out on my own and, and tried something um, a bit out of the ordinary. So you went to Chicago after you left home, you started your career in Chicago or you studied in Chicago. Then where did you go after that? After Chicago, I went to England uh, for graduate school at Oxford, uh, which was a wonderful experience. And uh, from Oxford, back to Chicago briefly uh, in 2008. And then from Chicago 2008. I went to Boston after the 2008 presidential race uh, to study at the Harvard Kennedy School for a second master's. God knows why I did that to myself <laughs> twice. <laughs> but, uh, and then from Boston, uh, after graduation, I went to Washington. Why did you want to study a second master's? Um, I think that I really, I actually really enjoyed my time in academia. I look back at some of the happiest points in my life, and it was in school. And I love the the pursuit of knowledge. And uh, I just didn't feel like I was done. I feel like there's a lot more to sort of get out of it. Let me go back to what you said earlier that you lived in England. What did you learn from learning abroad for a little while? I thought it was a wonderful experience because of the mix of cultures that come together at a place like Oxford. You know, my closest friends were from Germany, England, Romania, Japan, you know, all over the place. And it's also, it's one of those things that even though it's England and it's the most easily, I guess, transferable country to go to, it, it still is very culturally different. You know, cultural norms are very different. And it took me out of my comfort zone and it challenged me to really uh, broaden my way of thinking and, and seeing the world. I thought it was an excellent opportunity for a policy perspective because in the United States, we're very American-centric. There's nothing wrong with that, this whole idea of American exceptionalism. But uh, it's very interesting to look at policy from another point of view. I think it allows you to become a better policymaker because it's not so much, well, how do we do it here? You know, it's like, well, let's, let's see what's successful other places. And mm -hmm. you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, there are a lot of great examples of improvements to healthcare or environmental sustainability, or pensions, or housing, or whatever that other countries have done very well that we, we may not transfer that directly, but ideas and pieces of these policy successes can be in, you know, intertwined to the American system. And that's so interesting that you bring that up because I feel that a lot of people would associate England with being very similar to the U.S., but it, it really isn't. Just having that outside perspective 
opens up your ideas and it opens up your mind to different alternatives to solve problems. And I think that's why I wanted you to talk about it, because I feel that a lot of people don't understand that in order to really get what's going on in the world and really try to be creative at solving problems, you have to learn empathy. In order to learn empathy, you have to experience other places and other cultures and other ways of life. So now you returned home, you went to, well, you, you went to Boston, you got your second master's degree, and then you ended up working at the White House. Can you talk about how you got that job? And what was your responsibility when you were at the White House? Uh, I was a senior policy advisor at the uh, Domestic Policy Council, and uh, I worked on a couple of different issues. Workforce development was, was really the focus. Prior to the role at the Domestic Policy Council, I was in the Office for Recovery of Automotive Communities and Workers, which is a mouthful, but it was the office that was set up specifically to assist communities impacted by restructuring the automotive industry. So right around the time, just after the auto bailout, we um, started working with places like Flint, Michigan, and Walton Hills, Ohio, and Anderson, Indiana, and all these places that uh, had plant closures to help these communities recover. And the idea was to bring this focused federal task force in with multiple federal agencies as part of it, Department of Labor with the Employment Training Administration, EPA with their Brownfields office, and help community leaders understand these are the options and these are the uh, these are the ways that we can be helpful. And did it work? I think it was. It's been very successful. I'm very biased, but I think one of the biggest feathers in President Obama's cap is taking the steps necessary to stabilize these communities. I mean, look at what's happening with the activity in Detroit right now, um, but then other cities as well. And it was very important at the time because, you know, automotive factories are major employers. And when you have a factory of 2,500 people and all of a sudden it's, it's gone, you know, a lot of these towns are not huge. You know, they could be 10,000 people. And if you lose a you know, quarter of your workforce, it's, it's a major, major issue. Uh, yeah. So I think it's been very successful. And it's something that I think the president should be very proud of. And I'm honored to have worked on that, that issue. Being from Michigan, you know, it's something that, you know, is very related to my view of the world. My grandfather was a tool and die maker in the first part of his career. And so, you know, I, I understood the very important role that manufacturing played in the state. And, you know, when you're on the brink of collapse in an, an entire industry that so much of your state's economy is based off of. But I think what people forget about it is, yeah, you know, there's a couple hundred thousand jobs with GM and, and Chrysler, but you know, it's all the jobs that support it. It's the grocery stores and banks and yeah. delicatessens and mm -hmm. bars and whatnot. I mean, these communities were just absolutely devastated because overnight people lost their jobs and the trickle down of that was significant. So you know, it's funny because when this debate was happening, like, do we bail out GM and Chrysler? You know, there's a, a large contingency that thought, you know, we just let them go down, let the market decide. But the ripple effect would have been unbelievable. And I'm pretty sure every state, if not, you know, 48 out of 50 states have some components of the automotive industry, whether it's a tire manufacturer or someone who makes, you know, widgets. And I mean, that impact would have been, uh, if we would have let GM and Chrysler go down, completely, or, you know, some other form of what they are now, it would take a long time to recover from that in a lot of these towns, but then also nationwide. And they are doing well now as 
as the industry has recovered a little bit, GM, Chrysler, who else? Ford? Ford, GM, and Chrysler are the big three in Detroit. Okay. Yeah. And all three have, you know, they've had um, some pretty good years in the past couple of years. Uh, it's, it's interesting because there's a lot of disruption in the market right now with autonomous vehicles and mobility. Yeah. Um, and so these companies sort of led by Ford, Ford's kind of taken the lead on this, which is kind of shifting the image to a mobility company, not just an automotive company. So, uh, you know, I mean, the, the industry's changing. And so is it going to, 15 years down the road, is everyone going to own a car in their garage? Or is everything going to be very fleet oriented where, you know, essentially everyone uses an Uber Lyft type model? I mean, who knows? Yeah, that drives um, itself. Yeah. And if, if I did know, I would be living in Bali right now because, you know, I would <laughs> have invested all my money the right way. So. So then you went into the lobbying world, right? You mm -hmm. still owe me that dinner at the Palm, by the way. Yeah, well, I will do that for you next time we're both in D.C. <laughs> but tell me about how that, why you decided to go into the lobbying world for a little bit. Well, I think that I got to a point in my career where I felt, all right, I need to kind of go off and do my own thing, kind of define myself. Uh, you know, I spent a long time working for Barack Obama, and I, I would not have traded that for anything in the world. There's no one I respect more than him. And... You know, it was interesting because I'd never, ever in my career thought, well, I want to become a lobbyist. That's something I sought out. It was sort of, I didn't, at, at that point in my life, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And the opportunity was there. So I'm like, all right, let's give this a shot. And, you know, great firm, great people. Uh, I still keep in touch with a lot of them. Yeah, it's it's an interesting profession because people think lobbyists are like, oh, oil, tobacco. But the the other side of that is you have a lot of, great organizations, nonprofits, colleges, cities, and whatnot, that need to counteract that influence that the oil and tobacco and whoever lobbies brings. And so you can't, in the lobbying world, you can't sort of carve out a niche of doing very pro-justice type lobbying, working for clients that, you know, you really believe in their mission or believe in what they're trying to do and try to counteract that, um, I guess, the negative. But, but here's the thing. I mean, it's all based on one's interpretation. So what, yeah. what I see is sort of the evil empire. Others will be like, well, this is an important part of the American economy. So it's all individual perspective. <laughs> What's it like working with one of the most charismatic leaders of our time, President Obama? You got to bring your A-game. I mean, he he's an, a, an amazing human being because I, I think when people ask this question, like, what do you admire most? It's It really is his thoughtfulness. You know, it wasn't you know, a lot of leaders that will remain nameless, you know, are kind of knee-jerk reaction. And I, I felt that President Obama really broke down the situation, assessed it, and put a lot of thought before acting. He seems like a thoughtful kind of person. Very much so. Very much so. Well, And, you know, I mean, we it was an interesting time. I mean, when I started working for him in 2003, we were kind of a mom-and-pop operation. I mean, there was a few of us on the campaign staff, and we were six out of seven in early polls in the Illinois primary. No one had heard who Barack Obama was. And he's a state senator from the south side of Chicago. He run against Bobby Rush in 2002 and lost. And people were kind of like, eh, you know, guy's interesting. He's smart, whatnot. He brings good ideas to the table. Um, but there are a lot of other great candidates in that, that field, a couple that folks had just assumed were going to run away with this. Thankfully, got to spend a lot of time with him, got to know him both on a personal and professional level. And I mean, the guy is, he's all he's talked up to be, really. Is he really that cool? Come on. <laughs> well, look, I mean, I the first conversation we ever had, I think we talked about NFL football for like an hour and a half. Um, and 
you know, a guy, you know, it, it wasn't just all work, right? It was kind of like, hey, we have lives here. We have other interests. Mm-hmm. And I appreciated that about him. You know, we could have a conversation that kind of dove away from the campaign for a while and it was acceptable. And it was, it was nice to have that sort of break. I mean, I've, you know, a lot of people have bosses where it's just work, 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 work all the time. Mm-hmm. And you never create that personal connection or never see them as a human. You see them as a boss. And I think he did a really good job with everyone around him. And other people I know that, you know, have spent their careers working for him or worked for him in some capacity. He um, would take the time to get to know you, the individual, and your interests and your family. And uh, I just really respect that uh, from a person. And, and I think that the, the other piece to this is, you know, you know, he was the most powerful man in the world. But mm-hmm. he did not approach this as like an authoritarian, like, I'm the boss, you report to me, it's my way or the highway. It was very sort of, what do you think? It, it, he always made you feel like an equal. And um, I think that's that's rare at times in a profession where, especially when you're the president of the United States, I mean, you you have the right to tell people, hey, look, I'm in charge. But I never got that sort of feeling from him when I worked on the campaigns and whatnot. It was always sort of like, we're a team. You mm-hmm. know, it's a flat organization. And I, you know, I think that's, that's an incredible quality that I've actually tried to take forward in my career as I've had staff and whatnot, make them feel like an equal partner yeah. rather than a, a subordinate. I was going to ask you, like, what was the biggest lesson that you took away from working with President Obama as a leader? What was the leadership lesson you took away? That's what it is. I mean, I think that as from a leadership perspective, I think it's very important to listen to folks around you. I, the, the biggest mistake you can make is walking in the room thinking you have all the answers. You're the smartest guy there. Mm-hmm. Because nine times out of 10, that's not the case. And secondly, it's, it's how you treat people, right? And it's, it's how you, you know, you don't bark orders at people. You, know, you, you have a conversation with them and you listen to them. If, they, if, if there's an a alternative opinion in the room, you don't say, well, yeah, but I want to do this or I want this out of you. You know, you, you hear them out and make sure that you are at least taking that into consideration. And I think that's what he did well. Tell us a little bit about Detroit. What sparked your desire to return home and make an impact there? Really was linked to a lot of the policy work I was doing while in the administration. But then it's, you know, it's a comeback story is very contagious. You know, there are a lot of dedicated people who have been in Detroit for years, who never gave up, who never left, who always said, you know what, we're going to make this work. We're going to come back. You can't shut off the lights on us yet. And I was very inspired by those people that have done that that stuck with this and, you know, wanted to work with them, wanted to uh, learn from them. And that was really the deciding factor was how do these people make it work? I mean, how do they hang in there? I mean, this is, these Rust Belt cities are some of those resilient places. And that was, that was really the driving force was really getting the opportunity to sort of immerse myself and learn from the folks that had, had brought this place back or are in the process of bringing it back. So you moved back to work for Wayne County, Michigan, which Correct. I'm assuming is the main county of Detroit, yes, I guess. Yes. Okay. And what does the Director of Capital Development and Buildings Administration at Wayne County do? It's a mouthful. That's what it is. I know. <laughs> um, we kind of have two, two roles in my division. We, we essentially manage and, and run all the buildings that Wayne County maintains, which are you know jails and courts, health clinics, et cetera. So there we have a skilled trades workforce of plumbers, electricians, iron workers, carpenters, et cetera, that sort of maintain these, these buildings. Uh, and then the capital development side is uh, everything that is involved with 
sale of county property or leasing of county property. So it's um, if the county has surplus property. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about access through representation, community resources, and legislation, which is the main focus of the episode. You have experience in all three. Let's start with representation and legislation because I think I think they go hand in hand. How can people get access to their representatives? Well, first is vote. I mean, we we have such a pitiful voter turnout record in the United States. And, and people, we saw in this last election in 2016, how important those votes are. I mean, you had a, shoot, you had a Virginia statehouse race that essentially was decided on a, on a coin toss. And people were like, well, what, what does one vote do? Well, if 10,000 people would have felt differently, we may have Hillary Clinton as president right now. Voting is so important. And even in like the small local elections, like school board or whatnot, I mean, yeah, it's not flashy or whatnot, but uh, it's critical. Because what, what oftentimes happens is like these people are making the decisions that are going to impact your children or impact you, or, you know, they're going to be people that at some point are going to ascend to a higher office. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, look, Sarah Palin was a, a school board member to start her career. And then uh, look where she, I wouldn't say ascended <laughs> to, but uh, look where she went. Uh-huh. So voting is one way for sure. But then what about calling and getting involved when it comes to legislation, you know, if legislation comes up, like how do people truly make an impact without having to quit our jobs to occupy Wall Street for weeks? Yeah. Uh, no, you're right. I mean, you can write your members, you can call, show up at their community meetings, right? Members do town halls and they do meet and greets and they do parades and confront them. You know, I'm not saying be hostile, but like go ask questions. It may be positive reinforcement. It may be you may be a critic or whatnot, but engage these people. You know, I mean, a lot of people kind of put politicians on pedestals and say, oh, you know, I could never talk to he or she. But, um, you know, I think a lot do appreciate when voters come and say, hey, you know, I don't like this bill or I don't like the direction we're going here so that you can kind of discuss. I mean, discourse is very important. I feel like we have unfortunately slid into a time frame in society where discourse is difficult right now where people yeah. kind of live in an echo chamber and don't want to debate or don't want to hear dissension or whatnot. But I think it's, it's extraordinarily important because the answer is usually in the middle or somewhere like that, right? And mm-hmm. by going to these town halls and asking a question and putting them on the spot and say, hey, explain your decision here. Explain this thought that went into the, the legislation you're proposing. You explain why you voted this way on someone else's legislation? Or why are you supporting the governor or the president or whoever in their actions? Um, that's one way to do it. People, like, again, it's, it's in, could be intimidated, but don't be intimidated. They're public servants. They're, they're human beings like you and I. Yeah. And I think a lot of the time people forget that we're paying them to serve us. That's their job. Their job is to serve the community and they make money through our taxes. So we need to remind them of that. Well, the idea, you know, with elective representation is, you know, you're electing someone of your peers, right? You know, you're electing someone that lives in your block or in your town that's going to represent your worldview and your belief system and whatnot. And so oftentimes we forget what public servant means. They mm-hmm. work for us, mm-hmm. right? I mean, our state reps and congressmen or whoever, they work for us and 
we need to hold them accountable. And one way to hold them accountable is to engage in discourse. I'm interrupting this awesome episode to ask you a favor. Will you take a few seconds to leave a review? Tell me what other topics you would like to hear on the show. It takes less than 30 seconds to write a review and you can help change lives. Okay, I mean, that might be an exaggeration, but that's the kind of impact that Diferente is all about. A brighter outlook, a different perspective, all of this can be life transforming. Moving on to community resources. You come mm -hmm. from a humble background. That's what you mentioned earlier. What are the community resources that helped you get to where you are today? Well, I mean, we were a family that's um, survived on Medicaid. Um, there's a period of time we were on food stamps. Uh, my dad did not work. Uh, he's being disabled. So uh, disability insurance was essentially would put food on the table um, during long stretches. Um, the social safety is extraordinarily important. and I get, I get very cagey when people assume, oh, you know, it's just people trying to take advantage. And it's like, no, there are people who actually need a helping hand. And, and I can tell you, that wasn't because we didn't, my dad didn't want to work. I mean, there's nothing more in the world he would have wanted than to have a nine to five job that he could go to and bring home a paycheck. It just wasn't in the cards for him because of his disability. It's a shame that that we are so unwilling as a society to look at this as a collective, like we're in it together. It's a we. We always create this other. And people oftentimes point to impoverished families and whatnot as creating the other and look down on them and judge and accept it. But the reality is you, the judger, probably benefited from a social program at some point, a public school education. You yeah. drive on a highway. And That's a shame that we have, we have to sort of, where people are inclined to create this, um, divisive attitude towards folks that, um, you know, got a, got a bad rap. But what about the issues that we do see of abuse? Because there definitely has been a lot of fraud and abuse when it comes to public assistance. I have seen it firsthand working with people who in the, for example, in the restaurant industry, when we had a diner. We would hire people and they would work for two weeks just so they could prove to Job and Family Services that they had had a job and that they were looking and interviewing for jobs so that they could continue to receive assistance. And then they just wouldn't come back. There were plenty of jobs, but people wouldn't want to work. I do have that personal experience with that. How do you deal with those situations? How can we make it so that people don't abuse? There's fraud and abuse in the corporate world, too. Yeah. Right? And there's fraud right. and abuse in how we treat employees. And fraud and abuse can take very different, many different forms. But here's the thing. You don't know everything's going on with that individual, right? I mean, they could say, oh, well, I just need, I just want to check this box so it looks like I'm, I'm searching for work. But look, you don't know what kind of mental illness that person has either, right? They may not be outwardly disabled and, and say, you know, in a wheelchair or legally blind like my father, but they could be bipolar or they could have another issue that really inhibits them in some way. So, I think people often say, oh, look, there's an able-bodied person. They should be out there working, doing X, Y, and Z. Not to get off topic here, mm -hmm. but I, I think mental illness is so stigmatized in the society that we often jump to conclusions, but there may be something else going on. And not just mental illness, but I also saw a lot of drug abuse in the community that we were in. And that was also part of the reason why people couldn't hold down a job. Which, you know, a lot of folks would argue is a symptom of mental illness as well, an addictive personality. Again, sure, I certainly would not argue no fraud and abuse takes place. And I think it's very important for state and federal policymakers to 
work within a system to eliminate fraud and abuse, no question. But what, what gets me is oftentimes people want to take a hatchet when we, they should take a scalpel to the problem and want to say, well, just eliminate TANF and SNAP because you know these mothers are abusing it. Well, okay, so you, you may have a couple folks that are taking advantage of the system, but you know you shouldn't kill it for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's sort of my perspective on this is you know recognizing that there are flaws, but also recognizing that we are smart and courageous as a society. And if something is broken or something needs to be fixed, fix it, right? And if there's a way to get around and identify folks that are abusing the system, do it. Don't just say, well, let's get rid of it. I kind of link this to the, the healthcare debate. President Obama was very upfront. He's like, look, if you don't like Obamacare and you think there's a better system and a better way of doing it, let's talk. Yeah. And I think that is very salient for social assistance as well, where it's like, okay, if you think there's fraud and abuse, let's have this conversation and let's make sure the resources are there for people who need it. So it, it is a work in progress. You know, we're an imperfect society, but it's fixable. And I wholeheartedly do not agree with the folks that are like, oh, I, I saw someone abuse this. Let's just get rid of the program. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the time, the issue comes down to education and lack of proper education for a lot of kids in our communities who are not being exposed to how to grow and live as an adult. They just go to school and then if they don't do well, nobody cares. If they don't follow through in their homework, nobody cares, nobody pays attention. So when it comes down to it, I really do think that we are lacking education in our communities. And that's part of the reason why a lot of people can't can't get out of the situation that they're in. They don't even know what the options are. In your opinion, what were the community resources that helped you move forward in your education? Well, let me go back to one point, though. I think in addition to education, I want to touch on a point you made earlier. It's empathy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a lack of education, lack of empathy. I think those things combined are what can put us in the position. To your question, I mean, I'm, I'm a product of public schools. I think it was very important uh, having that educational exposure. But I think that the thing with my education is continually trying to take yourself out of your comfort zone. And I, I know I keep talking about that, but challenging yourself, you know, I, I think that throughout education, obviously, you, know, you can find sort of a path and a niche and all that. And like, all right, I'll just sail through. But I mean, it's important to take that weird class with that strange professor or get to know that, you know, kid in the back of the, the room that's, you know, you would normally never interact with. And I think that throughout my education, that's always kind of been my thing. It's not, all right, this is how I get to point A to point B. These are the requirements I have to take. It's kind of like, all right, what can I do that is kind of funky? Yeah. And I, I tell you, that's something I, I would never regret is, you know, I, I took a I took a class in undergrad from a professor who I adore, and it was an LGBT politics class. And I didn't really know much about sort of the movement. And, you know, I surrounded myself with a lot of like-minded straight males and whatnot. I played rugby. And, uh, you know, they just didn't seem like, you know, people like, why are you taking that class? Well, it's because it, it is different than me, right? And mm-hmm. it allows me to understand another perspective. And so continue to challenge yourself in education is really important. Do you think you had enough support systems around you in high school to be able to make the right decisions about where you were going to go to college and what your options were, like how to get financial aid, how to apply, what kind of classes you need to be taking and things you need to be doing with your extracurriculars? 
do you think you had the right support? I didn't. Uh, and, you know, to be fair, like, it, it's, I wouldn't say it's anyone's fault per se. I mean, neither of my parents went to college. So, like, they would help me make decisions as much as they could, but they didn't have any personal perspective on it. What about the school? They could have used more resources. The school? The school could have, yeah. I mean, you, you know, a lot of these schools are well-intended, you know, have great teachers. But, but here's the thing. I, I think I needed the individual attention. Mm-hmm. And that's why I really didn't start to blossom until I went to college where, you know, I got that sort of individual attention. And, and this is why I went to a smaller university too for undergrad is where I, I knew my professors on a first name basis. And I saw the same people in classes that, um, you know, I would see out in a social setting and whatnot. In a lot of public schools, it's very much sort of the degree mill mentality. And again, like I think there are wonderful people who are associated with my public school that I was a part of and all that, but that setting wasn't really geared for someone who needed sort of the extra push, someone to kind of step out and say, hey, we believe in you and you can make the most of this situation. This is what you need to do. Uh, I probably would have did better um, I personally, or I may have started to bloom a little sooner if I had a different high school education, I think. What do you think we could do better in our communities, like in our high schools, specifically public high schools, to give kids better access to the resources that will allow them to grow and better themselves? It starts with believing in them as an individual and telling them you can do this. A lot of people sort of start out from a really you know rough upbringing where people have been telling their entire life, no good, you're poor, you're not smart enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not interesting enough or talented. And it's really explaining to each one of these children that go through, you're unique. You have unique talents. You know, you may not be the best student in math or science. You might, may not be the best reader, but you could be an outstanding artist or you could be a great trumpet player. Or, you know, there, I think it's, it's really spending more time on the individual to figure out, you know, what are you interested in? You know, what, what drives your passion? One of the worst things we've done in this country is we've gotten rid of a lot of the skilled trades like auto shop and wood shop and then a lot of the arts programs because there's a subset of students that, you know what, they don't want to be an English major. They want to, you know, work as an auto mechanic. That's what interests them. Or they want to work as a sheet metal worker or they want to be a carpenter. And to our detriment, I mean, this country has, has got to a point where our skilled trades gap is at a, epidemic point where not enough people have gone into plumbing or electrical work or iron work or whatnot. But guess what? I mean, there are still a need for that out there. So I think that's where we miss the boat from a public school perspective is understanding that you're dealing with a diverse group of people that have very different talents. And just because your talent may not fit the script of what people think is a successful student doesn't mean you're an idiot. It just means you have different interests in, in a different talent. What about financial literacy, teaching financial literacy in high school? I kind of wish that I would have learned more about that when I was 17 years old, 18 years old. What about you? Oh, absolutely. I think financial literacy is incredibly important. Understanding a budget, understanding if you're making 100 bucks a week working at McDonald's, the 15-year-old, you don't spend 120 bucks a week. But it's also, there's such a large percentage of individuals that come from disadvantaged backgrounds that are unbanked, you know, understanding your money is safer at a financial institution where it's drawing interest rather than under your bed Mm -hmm. or in a can. 
Also, you know, you're going to spend it a lot quicker if it's just, you know, if you got a hundred bucks sitting on the table, I guess, shit, I'll go out to uh, dinner tonight rather than I'm going to let this continue to accumulate and save for a situation where I'm going to need it. You know, I have a medical bill to pay off or I have Mm -hmm. back to school supplies to buy or whatnot. You know, but also like, I think that, and not to sound too old and crotchety, but I I also (laughs) think that there has been... um, a shift away from understanding the value of a dollar, mm-hmm. you know, working for your dollar. You know, a lot of parents have enabled their children to become financially illiterate because they give in to their every need instead of saying, all right, you want a car? Get a job. Buy yeah. a car. I mean, your first car should be a crappy car. And it should be something that you have purchased because if you worked for it, you understand the value. In the same thing with education, you know, I, I paid for every penny of my education personally because we didn't have the means to do it. But it also taught me, don't skip class. I'm paying for this. How did you pay for it? Uh, I mean, I worked every random odd job you could. I delivered pizza. I took out loans. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had some scholarship money. I mean, I kind of it was a patchwork quilt of, of financing it, but it, it was largely driven by you know working. Wow. It was also being cheap. I'm extraordinarily cheap. My <laughs> wife can attest to that. And you kind of had to learn that on your own. So that's pretty impressive. Well, you did because like, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't, we weren't able to splurge, right? And like, we couldn't buy the new, big new TV or computer just because we wanted it. It's like, we didn't have the money for it. So you had to make do with what you got. And, and I think that part of this is we have a very sort of disposable society now where people are very quick to sort of, move on to the next thing when their goods, whether it's household, clothing, electronics or whatnot, are perfectly sufficient. But you know, that's just kind of the consumer culture and how things have shifted. Yeah. So I'm curious, as a white male, do you feel that your rights are on their threat because of resources like affirmative action? Do you think this has ever had a negative effect in your career or life? No. And I think it's absurd to feel that way. I mean, being a white male in America is like winning the lotto. <laughs> like you, you are giving so many opportunities by just being a white male in America. And here's the thing, like, you know, if you got to work a little harder to compete, great. Because you've been handed so much in your life already. What's a little competition, mm-hmm. right? I mean, more people come into the plate. It, it's only going to make us better. It's only going to force us to produce a better product. Those that are running scared thinking that, oh man, this, we need to make America great again because <laughs> it is becoming, you know, a shell of itself. It's, it's absurd to feel that way. It's absurd to think that you are getting the raw into the deal here because there are people who get the raw into the deal. There are injustices in society every single day that are based on skin color or religion or sexual preference or creed or whatever. My sympathy is lacking for those that feel like their rights are at threat. I mean, we've been, white men have been able to vote since day one of this country, right? Mm-hmm. Women, we're approaching 100 years next year. It's somewhat sad to watch people pout about their fear that they're getting their rights taken away. It's, I think it's absurd. Why do you believe access is important for minorities living in the United States? Because a lot people come from different perspectives, right? Different cultures. And this has been a very white male-centric, Judeo-Christian country uh, in terms of policymaking for two, for so long that is that the best way of going about it? Do we have all the answers? Absolutely not. 
And so, you know, it's important for some of some from the African American community or the Latino community or the LGBT community to step up and say, you know what, you may see the world this way, but this is how your policies affect me. And I don't see it the same way you do. So we need to have a discussion. We need to have a discourse. And again, discourse is critical. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's, it, it's really at the foundation of our democracy. And, you know, we are poor as a nation if we think, all right, we'll let one homogenous group sort of lead the way and we'll fall in line. And so having, having representation from all these communities is pretty critical to keep us, um, keep us sane. I mean, this is, America is a diverse place of diverse ideas and diverse cultures. And we, we need to reflect in our policy and representation that very thing. And if we do not, you know, you run the risk of a tyrannical government that puts policies in place that benefits one at the expense of another. And to me, that is um, a terrifying outcome. Couldn't I put it better myself? <laughs> well, I'm sure you could have. <laughs> I have two more questions for you. Sure. What is your passion and what is your definition of success? My passion is really continuing to challenge myself and learn and make sure that I don't get complacent. Uh, too often in our careers and our home life or whatnot, we get complacent and be like, all right, this is comfortable. I'll just ride this out. <laughs> My passion is finding those interesting projects to work on. My passion is, is ensuring that there are diverse voices at the table. It, it is working on things that are a bit out of the ordinary that people have given up on. That people say it's not a worthwhile cause. But I guess my pa- from a personal perspective, my passion really is staying interested. And for me, that also defines success. I mean, success to me is waking up every day and wanting to go into work and wanting to work on projects that are impactful. And uh, that is success. And it's not what's in your bank account. It's it's what sort of what excites you. Right? It, the, the ideal scenario for a successful career is waking up in the morning and say, I got these 10 tasks I have to complete today and I couldn't be more excited to do it. Not, oh, I got, I have to go to work now. And um, unfortunately, so f- many folks are sort of stuck in that rut where it's like, I have a job, not I have a passion. And then I get paid to do, to work on. And I think that's the key, right? Is figuring out how to get paid for something that really motivates you and makes you extraordinarily happy. That's success. Because, you know, money can buy a bunch of superficial stuff, but it often can't buy good mental health. In the spirit of the past two years, I would like to invite you all to participate in positive in-person discourse with as many people as you are able to handle over the next few weeks leading into election day. You know how in episode 101 I said, don't bother arguing with people on social media? Let's make a pact to have more meaningful conversations off screen and less one-sided pity parties. What do you think? The next time you find yourself enraged over something someone typed, check yourself before you respond and ask, how can I make a positive impact in the lives of others today? Because that angry troll online doesn't really care what you think. And you have a bigger chance of breaking your keyboard from typing so hard than changing their mind. Don't forget to check out our next episode in the Access series, where we will be discussing access and education. That's episode 122. 
In the meantime, please share your thoughts on this episode by leaving a comment in the reviews. It's very easy and takes 60 seconds or less, depending on how fast you type. Your feedback, though, helps us create the type of content you, our listeners, can most benefit from. So do us a favor and leave your review today. Thank you for listening to Diferente. If you liked this episode, let me know by leaving a five-star review and by sharing a screenshot of this podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Just don't forget to tag me at Adiferente Life so I can know you're listening. Hasta pronto.